All right, everybody, welcome to another edition of Svarum Chatter Live. I guess that's the best way to put it. Um, we're joined tonight by Michelle Chesner. Um, we'll be discussing who is the librarian at Columbia University Libraries. Um, you're already asking to join. Give me one second. Um, and I just wanted to say a few things before we start. Number one, um, that uh, we had something like not last show, show before, that comments can be seen by both, you know, both people here, the inter everybody, the person being interviewed and myself, so just keep that in mind. Um, second of all, so people have asked me why it's just I'm flying solo on the video and everyone's just calling in. Unfortunately, the way Periscope and um, Twitter work is that it is only um, one, only the person doing the show can be on video. I know it's unfortunate and not maybe what everybody wants, but that's the situation. Okay. Now I will get you on. Okay, you are on. Hello. Hello, okay. By the way, this is on Twitter also, right? Did I get it to go on Twitter? It is, right? Um, let me check. You have it open? Because I don't. I think I it is. It. Yeah, it's on. Okay, perfect. Okay, thanks for coming on tonight. Um, I guess to start, the question would be, what exactly do you do? <laughs> That's a complicated question. I do all sorts of things. Um, but it basically comes down to, um, I guess, three different areas, although each of those could be broken down so many different times. Um, my basic job is, is collection development. So I build Columbia's collections. Um, that's that I think of that side of it as the general collection. So modern, if a book is published yesterday, it's posted on Sparm Chatter's Twitter feed. Um, I will buy that if it's appropriate for the Columbia collection. Um, I do reference. So if somebody's doing if somebody's doing research in any area of Jewish studies, and that's from ancient, I say I cover basically ancient Israel to modern Israel, and all the Jews in between. Um, and then special collections. So I am the, uh, I work with the Judaica collection. Columbia is, Columbia has a, the third largest collection of Hebrew manuscripts in the United States. It's actually the largest collection of a secular research institution, institution. One and two are the Jewish Theological Seminary and Hebrew Union College. So I spend a lot of time with rare materials, uh, books, uh, printed books, that is those that came off of a printing press of some kind, and manuscript, meaning those that were written by hand. Um, right. And then all sorts of other things, as uh, I guess, as as noted or not. Gotcha. And you, so you said you only really deal with um, Jewish books, right? Yeah, anything relating to Jews or Israel is my job is within my job description. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned before, like, new stuff that come out. Like, you buy, they buy new stuff, a lot of new stuff. How do you decide? What's that? How does that work? So there are a few different ways that I buy. Um, I buy a tremendous amount of stuff for the collection. We have, uh, Columbia is a pretty uh, rigorous research institution, so we want to have resources in every area. Um, and we'll, we have something called an approval plan, which means that for most academic presses, those books come automatically. I have to, I look over them just to see what's come in, but I don't have to say, I want this particular book from Princeton University Press. That'll come in automatically. 
Um, it's what we call like the 90, 95% that is not included in um, what you would expect from an academic press. So that's actually where actually your, your Twitter feed is helpful. Um, but also many, obviously many other, many other places that I go to, to find, um, to find books that are relevant to the collection. And that's in all languages uh, from around the world. Right. How, how do you, but how do you decide, let's say something new comes out, how do you decide this is something that Columbia wants to buy? Obviously, I don't imagine they buy everything new that comes out that Sfarum Chatter puts on. Certainly not everything that Sfarum Chatter puts on. Uh, we don't have a large collection of what I call rabbinic literature, um, which is a lot of, I mean, the Sfarum. So we'll get uh, critical editions of manuscripts, things like that, so that are put out sometimes by, um, I guess you could call like the from presses or, or even the Hamish presses, um, depending on what's, what's out there. Um, it really depends on, on how much I think, or I know that there's an, uh, a research interest, not only for now, but for the future, I have to look at every book that I'm thinking about buying and say, is there, is there research potential for this book? Right. Gotcha. So I guess a lot of the, Especially, let's let's say, for example, Rishonim, you know, Mosada of Cook, I'm throwing something out. They redo something. They use some old, like something like that. Those classical kind of stuff. That kind of stuff they do buy? Absolutely. Yeah, we get most of what Mosada of Cook prints. But I'm not I'm not buying every single Pirush, certainly not every, you know, modern commentary that comes out on the market. Those are, I can rely on other institutions to do that. Because even those have a research value. People who are studying Orthodox Judaism in the 21st century you know, 200 years from now, we'll potentially want to see some of those materials. But I can know that I can rely on other institutions that that acquire heavily in those areas. So Yeshiva University is doing a great job buying all sorts of um, rabbinic literature. Uh, JTS actually makes sure to buy rabbinic literature across the religious denominations. Um, even places like the New York Public Library the research division will buy more of the rabbinic literature because it's an open collection. So many people for the last century, you know, since the New York Public Library opened, uh, Jews have been going there to study Jewish texts, um, including many, many from people who just sit in their reading room because they have all sorts of things. Whereas Columbia's collection is because it's a private university, you can't just walk into the Columbia libraries for the general collection. For the rare collection, it's something different, but you couldn't just come and browse the stacks if you're not affiliated with Columbia. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And just one last thing on this. So when all these types of stuff we're discussing, this is your your decision on what to buy? Yeah. I, there are, I mean, I have people who, who, I have scholars at Columbia and beyond who will email me and say, this just came out. I need it for my research. Can you buy it? Um, right. But ultimately, it's, I have a budget that I am required to spend and I make the decisions of what I buy on that. And it's not just books. I should say databases are also a large part of what I do. Digital resources. I mean, now with coronavirus, we're all thinking about digital resources and digital access to all sorts of things. And that's also part of what I'm required to do. So I have to be aware of all of the databases that are coming out and decide whether it's appropriate for Columbia to subscribe to them. Right. Gotcha. So how long are you doing this? How long are you at Columbia? Were you somewhere before? Uh, so I've been at Columbia for almost 10 years. Uh, before that, I was at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. I was working at the Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies there. Um, I was a reference librarian. So I, all I was doing there was working with um, 
with people doing research. I was doing some archival processing, but I wasn't, I didn't have the responsibility for acquisitions. So for buying materials like I do now. Right. So I guess that would go into, so what is your day-to-day -day job now? So what, what exactly is you, I know we discussed, but what exactly is it like day-to-day? So it's all over the place. I mean, I literally, I said I work from ancient Israel to modern Israel. Uh, I literally had back-to-back -back reference questions, one about um, Hellenistic impact on uh, on Jews under uh, under the Greeks, and then the next in the next reference question, the next um, I guess person that I met with was thinking about um, social media impact on the Israeli elections. So that's just a uh, like the scope of the kinds of reference questions I get. Um, but but I'm also de dealing with the rare collections. So the manuscripts that we have are by definition unique. If something's written by hand, then it doesn't exist anywhere else. There might be a copy of it somewhere else. Um, there are scribes that, that produce things in multiple copies. Um, so those, so I, I, they have been cataloged for the most part, but I, I am working to buy them. I'm working to make them accessible. I'm working with uh, researchers who are using the collections. I um, and I'm also. I, I mean, it's it's sort of all over the place depending on the day. So today I was working on um, processing uh, images of manuscripts that had been digitized so that they could be posted online because we're trying to get a lot of our materials online. So that was one thing, for instance, that I was working on today. Right. I do want to get there, but I want to take a step back for a second. How did you get into this? How did you get into this field? I mean, is this something, and, and follow up on that is, were Sparim and old books kind of a hobby of yours growing up? Were you always interested in that? So I was always interested, I always loved history. Um, and, and to me, it was, I, I guess, I mean, I laugh now as a professional about people who talk about what I like, quote unquote, ancient books, um, when they mean a book that's a couple hundred years old. Um, but I was, I was definitely one of those people. I thought that old books were cool, um, but I didn't really consciously think I want to go. I, I never collected rare books in that, in that sense. Um, but I had this moment. So I was in, um, I did an undergraduate degree in history and I, I mean, there's a whole backstory there, but um I was nearing the end of my degree and I was having conversations with a lot of my professors were trying to encourage me to go for a PhD. And I wasn't sure that that was something that I wanted, that I was ready to do at the time. And um, I was working in the library because I needed money. So I found a job in the place where I felt most comfortable. Um, and I was working for the archivist there. And I was talking to her as I guess I was in my junior year, thinking about where I sh what I should do next. Um, and she said to me, well, if you're not sure about a PhD, why don't you get a library degree? You'll get a job at a research institution. And then if you decide to go for a PhD later, you can, um, the institution will pay for your degree, which sounded just very practical to me. I, you know, that, that okay, I could still work with books um, and, and maybe not have to go through the whole long haul of, um, of a PhD. And what I what I've learned now is that my what I, I love the learning. I always loved learning new things. Um, and what I find being a librarian allows me to do is to have the breadth, whereas a PhD is often is limited to a very um, a very specific period, a very specific genre. And obviously, there are there are 
um, there people who do a PhD then can branch out in many, many ways. But like I said, I can spend one day in the ancient past, in the real ancient past, and then and then move to the immediate present um, and really go everywhere in between. So I have the areas of, of scholarship that are most interesting to me, but I also learn new things all the time. And so that's that's really fun. So um, so this so this archivist that I work for told me that I should think about librarianship and go try and take an internship in a library that I um, thought was interesting. So I grew up in Baltimore and I called uh, the person who worked at uh, what was then Baltimore Hebrew University. It's now uh, no longer and has pretty much been folded into Towson University. Um, and she said, yeah, sure. Um, here's what you can do. We have these books that were found by the, the U.S. Army in this warehouse after World War II, and we need to identify them so we can catalog them. So can you just take down the title, author, date, and place so that we can catalog the books later? It was, it was pretty basic work, but I was dealing with old books. So the, old, the oldest book I picked up there was probably, um, maybe, maybe it was a 16th century book, but for me, that was amazing. That was so cool that I was, I was holding this, this old material. Um, and then I picked up this one book and it was a pure Shangamara. And I turned to the back of the book and I, I just was sort of flipping through it. And it had, it had handwritten notes throughout. So clearly it was heavily used. And then at the, back, um, at the front of the book was the stamp of, and I always say, I wish I had a better memory for this because it would sound so much better, but it was a stamp of a yeshiva that I recognized. So it was like on the level of Panovich or Navardic or, um, you know, one of the big Eastern European yeshiva, I guess for this chat, I'll say yeshivas as opposed to yeshivot. Um, and, um, and then I turned to the back of the book and I saw the stamp of the Nazi archives. And, wow. then, and then in the front of the book was this uh, book plate from the Jewish Cultural Reconstruction Project, which was the project that returned books that had been stolen by the Nazis to sort of the Jewish people broadly read. And to me, I was a history major. I was really interested in history. And I looked at these books and I, I realized that this is, if you're interested in the past, this is how you connect to the past. Here was, you know, somebody, some Bachar was learning this Becharus, I assume. And um, then Nazis walked into yeshiva and grabbed the book and threw it onto a pile. And it uh, went to some uh, warehouse to be either burned or to be added to, you know, the Museum of the People, formerly known as the Jews. Um, and... It was it was like it was visceral the response and I realized that this was actually something that I really wanted to do. Now, being a librarian does not ensure that you'll be dealing with thousand-year-old manuscripts every day. I am incredibly lucky uh, in the job that I have and the work that I get to do. Right now, Columbia also is they also are you actively? I mean, you said mentioned before, but are you actually do you go to auctions and purchase new manuscripts or is just kind of what you have in the manuscript? really old stuff kind of thing. So I'm actually really lucky that I do get to go to auctions and I buy, um, I have a fund to buy rare materials. So um, it's, it's really fun to go to an auction. I recommend going um, whether or not you're planning to buy anything just because, especially the Judaica auctions, the, there's, um, I, I always say it's, 
it's 90% from 75% Hasidic because they're mostly, it's, it's a lot of book dealers and the book dealers who, who deal in Judaica uh, tend to be people who know the texts very, very well. Um, and I'm sometimes one of, it, depending on the auction house, sometimes I'm the only woman in the room. Sometimes I'm one of two women in the room and the other woman is the wife of the person whose collection is being sold. Um, and I have plenty of female colleagues who also buy rare books, um, but many don't actually go to the, to the auctions themselves. They buy by phone or, or in other ways because they don't, sometimes when, when people see that a library is bidding, they'll say, oh, well, the library has tons of money. We can, you know, we can raise the bid or, or there, there are different things that are not so uh, uh, kosher about what goes on sometimes as far as cost. Um, and I will say that I have a much smaller budget than many of the private collectors out there, but um, I try to, you know, so I try to buy what's appropriate for the collection based on what we already have or what I know that research needs are. Right, so that's what I was going to get to. Is that buying either an old safer or a manuscript? Is that something that it's depending on? Do you want to supplement kind of what the library has? Like stuff I know we'll, we'll get to. Columbia has a lot of stuff from Italy. Is it or is it just you want to just expand what researchers have asked you for? What is? How do you? I know it. it meaning it was a little different than just buying you know a new safer that came out. Obviously, because the money involved. How do you decide yeah. what you want? So um, I have what's called a collection development policy. I have a, I actually have, and I send it to, to dealers as well because I say, this is what we do buy, this is what we don't buy. Um, so for instance, I do not, very rarely, I shouldn't say never, but I very rarely buy print books. The reason for that is because um, at this, a few reasons, first of all, our collection of, of early Hebrew print is fabulous. And so there's not very much that I need to buy. And even for what we don't have, so much of it is accessible digitally or just down the block at JTS, which has an incredible collection or in other ways. So unless I know that I need it, um, I bought, for instance, we didn't have a copy of uh, Shea Magdulim, which is a, a, the first bibliography um, of Jewish books printed, written by a Jew. And that was something that I realized that we didn't have. And I was co-teaching co a course in the history of the Jewish book. And I felt that that was, that was a critical thing. <laughs> not, not Schefter. I don't know. Um, I don't know. He's free. Um, but it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful seminar. But, um, oh, I love that. <laughs> um, Schefter Seminary, yes, that's the collection. Let's just call it Schefter Seminary. I like that. Um, but so, so I bought that one printed book because it was specific. I felt that it was really important to have in our collection as a record of the history of print. Um, but in general, I, I do buy manuscripts um, following Salah Baron, who was a professor, the quote unquote, father of Jewish history, of modern Jewish history who actually had a very strong hand in building Columbia's manuscript collection. So one of the things that I look at when buying manuscripts is, does it tell something about the social history? And by social history, I mean, is it, does it tell you about the people, the Jew, like individual Jews? Can you learn, um, can you learn about the, the individual lives of people from the, from the manuscript? Um, but then there are other areas I collect. We have a lot of materials from Amsterdam. So I, I look at the Dutch materials, uh, various areas in Italy. 
Um, we have an archive from a synagogue in Mantua. Um, I'm trying to think if we ever, if I ever bought anything for that reason. I don't think so. Um, or uh, we have a large collection on the Jews of the Comte de which was the, which is an area in the south of France um, that was essentially the Pope's Jews. They were protected by the Popes um, who who were in France. Um, and so that was the only consistent, after the Jews were expelled from France, Jews were still allowed to live in this area uh, because they were protected by the, by the Pope there. So, so we have a large collection of materials on that community. So though, that's another area that I'll look at. Um, and many others, it's sort of, it's sort of uh, scattered, but um, I tend to look at, at more, more things relating to individual people. I mean, that's, that's a, personal interest of mine in general, because um, I want to be able to tell stories and to learn about the people, uh, the individuals and, and or communities and how they lived and, and what they did and all that sort of thing. Right. So tell us a bit about Columbia's uh, library, like what what you kind of touched on it, but what kind of, you know, Svarim do you have? And what are some real, you know, maybe interesting or unique manuscripts or old Svarim that you do have in the collection? So one of the things that um, a lot of people get excited about is that we have uh, part of a collection that was donated to us in 1892 um, by Temple Emmanuel was this collection that was a hybrid collection of three collectors. Um, Yosef Almanzi, who was a major collector, a collector from Padua and, and Fred for you. Um, he was a good friend of Shadal. Um, and and um, as well as M.J. Lewinstein, who was the uh, chief rabbi of Suriname until his untimely death, death at the age of 40, and one uh, rabbi, Yaakov Enden. So we do have part of Yaakov Enden's library, um, and that is a very exciting thing. The most um, well-known book that we have from his library is um, we have his own Arba'atu Rim, so we have his tour. And what's amazing about it is that he actually talks in his own writings about how he used to stay up late learning tour. Um, and one night his candle fell and there, the book burned up until the point on which you make the bracha on Nisim. And so um, that's very interesting. And if you look in the, um, so the Moruktsia is, yes, it's completely, I mean, it's more than the, it's more than the Moruktsia. Um, what's in the Moruktsia is just a tiny, tiny part of the margins. Yaakov Emden wrote all over his tour, and I wish I had more pictures. Um, I've posted a couple on Twitter, but it doesn't even begin to get the the depth. The like, just he wrote all over it. It's 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 a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, if I could jump in for one second, there we only Moruktsia printed Arachayim. There's more in there. Oh, there are four volumes, and each of them are, um, I don't know, three inches thick and a complete disaster because the bindings have fallen off. The The binding itself is like broken almost completely. This was somebody who literally used his svarim, this particular sefer, to death. I mean, he was, uh, there's a reason why he's well known and why he wrote so much. And clearly he learned his tour, all of them, all four volumes. Right. And no, no people. Do people come in to, to you know people come try to publish it to research that or? So it's been microfilmed. Uh, we had two publishers who were supposedly printing it. Um, I did by um, somebody. Somebody actually sent me a. There's a there's a lesser. I think it was 
printed in 2002 of uh, an edition of the, of the Torah that was printed. And they talk about how it's printed with Xavier Kodesh, Yaakov Emden, which something like um, came to us, the Siata Deshmaya, um, and doesn't cite where they got any other information from. And I'm like, wow, you consider Columbia God? That's fascinating. Anyway, but, um, but, but I have looked at that and it doesn't match what we have. So I'm not sure what that, where that copy got materials from. There were a few of the Mahonim in, in Israel that were, that were supposedly printing an edition, but I haven't seen a critical edition based on at least the tour that I know of. Um, the, the based on the Torah Columbia, right? I that was with Jacob uh, Schechter we had on. I think they were supposed to do more, they never did, so maybe that's what uh, you're talking about. I mean, okay, there's so, a lot of work, and his handwriting is not easy to read. Yeah, I talked about it. my first one I had when I uh, when they put out the um, the aim recently, someone just put out from his Chumash the aim Labino, which is part of it. I mean, I, they had pictures mm-hmm. of it, it's like impossible. I don't know how anybody read any of that, yeah. Um, so, what other form of his do you have? And then back to what are some, I know you have a lot of stuff from Shadal. I don't know if everybody's right. A lot of his. Lot of stuff from yeah. So talk about some of the other stuff. I know. Sorry. Uh, I cut you off there. Well, so I'll, I'll, I mean, we have about, we have about had six or seven books that I know definitely were owned either by Yaakov Anden or the Chacham Tzvi. There's about 80 more that I'm pretty sure were owned by them, but they didn't one or the other, but uh, they're not marked up. Um, in any way, so I can't cert- say with certainty. Um, there's one. There's one little volume that is very exciting because it talks. It's actually written by um, the Chachamsi's father. There's a there's a little inscription in the back, and um, JJ Schachter knows about this. I believe he wrote about it. Um, I'm sorry, no, Dr. Sh- Dr. Schneer Lyman um, wrote a little bit about this. Um, at the back, it talks about uh, Mazel Tov, my son has been born, um, and this is Tzvi Hirsch Ben Yaakov. Um, I'm sorry, not Ben Yaakov. Yeah, his name was Yaakov of Vilna. Yeah. Um, and so he, but the date is actually two years off from the generally established date of the Chacham Tzvi's birth. So there's there's research, research that's been done in that area. Um, but... So that's that's another that's another volume that's specifically to um, to that family that's interesting. We also have a number of manuscripts by Rabbi Shlomo Kluger. Um, we have letters. We have two of his pirushim on Gemara, chidushim on Gemara. Um, in so those are those are actually codex manuscripts. They're they're bound volumes, and then we have something like ten or fifteen letters that were written to him, um, Shilos. Um, and we don't have the answers that he sent because this seems to have come from his his collection. So he doesn't he didn't, I guess, keep the answers to those particular uh, questions. Um, who else do we have? We have a scroll of um, Megillat Eva. Forgive me. I'm going to go back and forth with my tufts and stuffs. Um <laughs> Because it's, <laughs> uh, I'm looking at somebody who's dressed in a way that I talk to with Tufts, but I'm talking about my collection, the Columbia collection, which I talk about with Tufts. Um, so I, so we have this this scroll of of Eva that's actually a scroll. Um, yes, it's an actual scroll. Um, so I don't know if this is the scroll. I wouldn't say that without having somebody confirm it, but it's sort of interesting that it's in a scroll form. Um, so we have that. Um, 
there's it's sort of all over the place. If you're interested in visuals, we have a we have about seventy ketubot, um, uh, many that are beautifully illuminated. Um, we have it, it's sort of I say name your interest, and I'll tell you what we have in that area. That's particularly I mean we have a ton of Kabbalah. We have we have pre Lurianic Kabbalah, um, all sorts of all over the place. I guess people, anyone who wants in the comments can ask and you'll let them know. I know now I saw there's a lot going on about, uh, what's the name, uh, Rom Catalano, the, the safer on the plague in yeah, Manson, so we right? Do have this, we do yeah. have this. Yeah. That's yeah. Cecil Roth, I think, Cecil Roth. He, 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 he's the original one who put out, but he didn't use your manuscript, I saw. Maybe no, so there were a couple of... Like that, I think, I saw that he didn't use it when he, he put did. out his edition. Right, so there were a couple of copies that came out. It basically ended up becoming a manual for the plague. So if you're, if you're hit by the plague, plague here's what you should do um he was writing it for for other people really because he was the person who experienced um who went through this as a doctor um so you know everybody gets the whatsapps this is what dr so-and-so from lakewood says and here's exactly <laughs> what you should do so this was dr catalano from padua and here's what he said you should do in the in the case of the plague manuscripts of hasidic significance not a lot um we do have one, uh, at least one Lubavitch-related manuscript, which is sort of interesting. Um, it's not cataloged, and I don't... Uh, well, okay. Hasidic, of Hasidic interest, is a broad view. Again, like I said, we have a ton of Kabbalah. So if you want to talk about um, Kabbalistic manuscripts that are of interest to Hasidic, to Hasidism, um, to Hasidos, then you you, you can um, then yeah we have we do have we do have materials. I'm sure as soon as I get off the call, I'm going to be like, oh yeah, of course we have we have X, Y, or Z, and I'll comment if I if that happens. Um, but yeah, so that's um, we have we have this wonderful uh, lots of we have a few carried things actually. Um, we have. We have one leaf of what's supposedly a safer Torah, but I'm not sure. I am not sure that I believe that it's a safer Torah. It has a colophon at the end um, that says that it was donated to the Karite synagogue in 1320. Um, if you know anything about the history of Karism um, and particularly uh, Firkovich, um, you'll know that colophons are. It looks like a, it looks like it's from a codex, but it's been cataloged as a safer Torah for some reason. I don't know why. Um, then, so then, Kvirkovich uh, falsified a lot of things because he was trying to show that charism was older than Judaism or was older was was the more authentic religion. So there's a lot that that um, is kind of complicated when it comes to dates on carrot things. We also have a complete. Well, we have. Um, we actually do have a Torah scroll in scroll format that is that the National Library of Israel has identified as Karite. So I'm not sure um, if that's if that's the case, Yishev, if, um As far as the as far as I don't I don't know enough to to say to say to be honest. Um, but we do we do have a few other Karite. Uh, manuscripts. We have copies of some materials that Ferkovich himself wrote, um, some letters, but yeah, so there's some, there's some carry material. Now, Shadal stuff came from Almanzi, and also that has all that, I, I, is it, was it, is it Shadal's own handwriting, and has it all been published at this point? Uh, some, some, and some. 
it's all from a, it's not all from Amanzi. I have bought a few Shadal manuscripts in um, in recent years. Um, some of them are autographed. Some of them are not. Uh, some of them are written by his students. Clearly, like they wrote down as he was teaching. And not no, not everything has been published. Right. I know. I think the new edition of Nach and maybe. I don't know about the new Alatero one that he did, uh, the guy in Artisro. I don't know if he used some of your manuscripts. Uh, not that I know of, but a lot of our materials are available freely online. So people don't always tell me when they use the manuscripts um, for publication, like that, like that tour that came to Seattle Dishmaya. Nobody, <laughs> nobody asked me about it. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I spoke to, I spoke to Dan Klein about it and I, I, I know that he, didn't know about all the Shadal manuscripts that we have. Oh, wow. So we were talking about digitizing, and, and this relates to this also. Is everything digitized? Is the plan to get everything up? And even then, can we all access it, or do you have to have, you can't just all access it automatically online? So you can access everything automatically online. We operate under something called open access, which means that if it's out of copyright, we want to let as many people use it as possible. And this sometimes means that, again, I don't necessarily know, we, we've sort of let go of control of the materials. You don't have to ask permission to publish something that's available through our collection. We're simply stewards of the collection. We're not here to control who accesses things. Um, and so there is actually, on the Internet Archive, there's a page for uh, Columbia Hebrew Manuscripts. Right now it has 255 manuscripts on there. I'm working to add the 500 that we have in backlog. Um, but you can also get to our Hebrew manuscripts through um, Ketiv, the National Library of Israel's uh, database of Hebrew manuscripts. Not everything has been digitized. Uh, and some of the things that have been digitized are only digital copies of microfilms. So it's black and white, the color is bad, it's not easy to read. Uh, we're trying to get as much available to the public as possible. But for instance, something like uh, Rabbi Yaakov tour is something that's a little complicated to digitize. It's, we're talking about a, a foot of material wide. Um, it's in bad condition. So paging through it can harm the book even more. It would need conservation before digitization. Um, and, then, and then thinking about how you make something like that available online sometimes is also complicated. Um, we, so again, wherever possible, but some things will take longer than others because there are more issues in digitizing them. And, and, you know, we have, we, Columbia has millions of items and the Jewish studies materials are not the top priority for anybody but me. Um, and so I, you know, I have things that I can put through to get digitized and they get digitized, but there's, it, it takes time and there's, there's priorities and there's, there's literally a queue for digitization. Uh, if something is going on exhibit and then there's going to be a digital exhibit, then it will jump the queue to get digitized. Um, as far as being most, something being most worth publishing. So a lot of stuff. Um, but Rabbi Yaakov and Emden's tour is a, is a good one. I mean, that's something, or, or the Rib Shlomo Kluger, Rib Shlomo Kluger's uh, manuscripts, again, many of which are available online already. Um, you know which Rib Shlomo Kluger? Because the Machon Chachma Shlomo, which is named after him, is they publish a lot of that stuff. Do you know which ones those are that you have, which manuscripts? So we have, I'm actually going to look it up right now as we're talking. Um, but let's talk about it. It's specifically Chidusha Mangamara. I'm going to pull up the Masechto. Um, right. 
that it is while we're talking. And also, you think he did stuff in multiple Maduras? I mean, it's stuff like they publish it and it's got like from all over. I mean, they're publishing his stuff on Chumash, one volume per parish. That was crazy. He wrote like, so I know they're in the middle of that project. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he wrote a lot. Yeah. So we have 25 items from him, of which uh, 21 of them are, no, more than that, um, all except three are letters that were written to him. So those aren't actual um, manuscripts that he wrote. Those were, right. were sent to him. There's actually a really interesting one about a woman who writes because uh, her husband had some kind of mental illness and she's asking him for help. And then the husband, there's another letter from the husband um, afterwards also connected. Um, oh, so if they've stopped, then that's that could be another well they, I don't know that they didn't stop. They did a lot of stuff recently on the Chumash, which the stores don't even carry anymore because it's crazy. Nobody buys one volume per parish. It's insane. And then, so I, I don't know. I don't know. And then they put out the Chumash Adeshen, which is not him. And then they've been involved with uh, the Chumash um, Shalom Meshiv with them and the Chonish Lions. So I don't know. And, and the other shame is they do really nice work. Whatever. A, a bunch of his farm. And they just, this stuff's not in print. So I don't understand. They put all this money and then they just like stop. Anyways, we're back to, so well, which so one? We have, we have um, Kodashim, Seder Kodashim, and Nidarim. So, Chidushim. Right. So, right. So, Nidarim is, I think, Nidre's reason. That's three volumes that they published. They, I, I, he may have published that also, but they probably use your manuscript. Could be. We also have Elena Ravreva, which I think also was published. Which one? Elena Ravreva. It's on Shulchan Arach. Mm, I'm not sure. Is that the one on Ribbit? I don't know. Not ringing a bell. Maybe someone. It says, it says um, Shuvot al Arba Chalke Shulchan Arach. So it's Shuvos. Oh, it's one of his Shuvos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yossel, that was that was published. I don't. I thought it was. He yeah. Had Sefer Achayim, and then he had. And he has so many svarim. I lost track. He, he has a, a Chuvas um, Tuftan Vedas. It's him Chuvas, and then yeah, I don't recall seeing oh, it either. No, okay. no let's folded that in somewhere else. Tuftan Vedas is him, and he has another one, something with a shin or something, uh, something at the end of, of the alf base. I, I I know from being in charge, not like a librarian like you, but being in charge of of you know. Shul's farm and stuff, you know, from Aleph to Tuff, and that's how it gets cataloged. But um, interesting. Yeah, so that's, you know, as far as as far as uh, the audience for Svarm chatter, um, <laughs> that's, uh, those are the, those are the ones that I think are, are you know, for, for audience is something that's, that those are, those are really interesting. No, um, when you talk about it digitized, you mentioned manuscripts. So that means that technically I want to publish it. I can go on the website, find it. I don't have to tell you. I don't need your permission for that. Because the manuscript is not really in the public domain. I mean, you, you no, it's it. not. It's in the public domain. Really? Public Even public you own it? What? Even though Colombia owns it, if there's one copy in the world, it doesn't matter. No, this is this is something that's um, different. Libraries have different policies, um, but right. technically, Colombia does not own the copyright to, to items that are out of copyright. If it's right. we we will not we will not say straight out to you. Our our public services department will not say straight out to you. This is out of copyright because we don't want to get in trouble. But if it's not our copyright, it's not our copyright. How can we require you to do anything if it's not our copyright? Now, there are institutions that will say you need to pay us a publication fee because we have given you the privilege of using materials that are in our possession. And that's their decision. That's just not 
the way that we operate. So yeah, if it, if you could go online and find Hebrew manuscripts from Columbia and you could publish them. I appreciate if you tell me that you're publishing them because other scholars might come to me and say, has, has anybody done any work on it? Sometimes people who are looking on disserta for dissertation topics wanna know that it's something that's new. And if something then if something has already been written on it, then that's not really helpful for them if they don't know about it. And I have a, I mean, I keep track of whatever's been published so that I can assist people who are using, um, who are using the collection with with other scholarship on the collection. Right. Um, so I guess in regards to digitizing, this is a little different than Columbia. Um, Similar to what you were saying before, you like people to learn about the books. You're involved in a, you, I don't know if you started, give, give, give us the history of what exactly is a project called Footprints. So it's not a digitization project. Um, I, sorry, <laughs> I miscategorized, it's a, yeah. It's a, it's a digital project. Um, Footprints is, the tagline of Footprints is Jewish books through time and place. Um, and like the book that made me want to become a librarian, basically what we've, dis, what we've understood is that every single book tells a story, especially, I would say, especially Jewish books. Um, Jewish users of Jewish books tend to mark them up. I don't know what your Gemara's look like, um, but some- um, they, have, they have a few they, notes, yeah, some, depends they, on the Masechta. Yeah, so depending on, depending on when and how, when you, when in, you, when you learned them, but um, Jews tend to mark up their Svarim and they tend to use them. Um, they're, not, they're not meant to be just sitting on shelves. But not only that, the history of the book is often the history of its people. So you have books that are burned. You have books that are uh, expurgated. So a censor went through it and crossed out all sorts of passages that were deemed offensive to Christianity or to the Russian government, depending on where and when. Um, there are founded, there are, <laughs> right. Um, there are pen trials. Some of them are fabulous. They're not pen trials. They're actually uh, quill trials. Um, but there are, but there's all sorts of annotations. We have, there's one manuscript at Columbia, which is actually, um, I think it's not, it's a medrash. It's a, it's a manuscript of Midrashan of, I can't remember which, which medrash it is. Um, but at the very end of the book, it on the end paper, on the end board. So the very last part would like, before you close the book, um, is a recipe for a cure for scurvy. So it was sort of a matter of somebody, they talk about this, this ailment where somebody's bleeding it, from the mouth. It, um, but basically people were writing all sorts of things in their books, many times uh, things that had nothing to do with their books. There's another manuscript. So I have a, there's an exhibit that's online that I did uh, in 2012 of manuscripts in the collection. Um, and that's only manuscripts, so the handwritten books. And one of my, there is a couple of them. Um, one of my favorites is a, is a book that was written, clearly a scribe was hired to write this book. Thank you, vitamin C. Well, they didn't know that. Um, it wasn't Gamara, so it was okay. Medjish. <laughs> but, but that's why there's a harem, because this is what people did. They wrote all over their books. Um, so this, this other book was written by a scribe. Somebody hired the scribe to write it. And then at the end of the book, the scribe writes, I finished this book on such and such a day on which my wife had a baby. It wasn't his book, <laughs> but, but you know, when your wife has a baby, it's impactful. And so you just write it. Um, so these kinds of things. There's I, no I, social media. What do you expect them to do? Right. Exactly. <laughs> you would have posted it on Instagram. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, we have something that's called, that's known to scholars as the Columbia Talmud. It's a very important Yemenite Talmud from 1541. It has variants from the, um, from the printed text today. Um, we have maybe five Masechot from that Talmud. Um, and, but what I talked about when I put it in the exhibit, which was called the people in the books, because the exhibit was all about, um, how books tell stories about actual people, uh, was there's a star at the end. It's a Yemenite book. And, and they, in order to sell a book, they actually had witnesses. Um, and it's a formal star and they used Minyan Shtarot actually, um, saying I so-and-so sold this book to so-and-so um, for this on this date for this month I can't remember if there's a cost also um, and then there are two witnesses who sign that they saw this um, exchange take place so there's so much humanity that's found in Jewish books but footprints is more than that um, I mean you from that so that's sort of the the smaller level you could see individual stories you also see how collections are dispersed. So if you've read Dan Rabinowitz's work on the Strashun collection, one of the things that he talks about is how tragic it is that the collection is separated. And you don't know what was even in that collection um, because it's because it's in, in different places now. Um, and I was just uh, talking to somebody today and I said, well, if, if all of those books from Strashun, and we're actually working with Evo to get the Strashun collection, um, at least the Evo Strashun collection into footprints, um, we've put about a hundred records um, from from that collection in, and we have many more to do. Um, so the the Yivo Strishan books will be in footprints, and then if a if a private owner of a Strishan books book puts their books into footprints, you could then do a search, and you can come up with all the books that were in the Strishan library when it was in Vilna. Um, with the example of Yaakov Emden, so the Emden collection was sold as part of two sales. The first, um, the first sale went to the British Library, and that's where I don't know um, how many people listening know about the Golden Haggadah, but it's one of the most um, glorious illuminated Haggadot, which has gold all over the place. And that was also part of the Almansi collection, but it was sold um, as the first part, and we only got the second part. Um, and so half of Yaakov Emden's library went to uh, the British Library, and then parts of his shas ended up at the National Library of Israel. And some more of his materials ended up at Jews College. So, so again, what did Yaakov Emden have in his library? If all of the data from all of these different books in different places was brought together, then we can start to get a sense. So that's sort of one level. That's not individual stories. Then you start to think about um, complete libraries. Um, and then you can go even broader and you could say, well, let's think about intellectual history. Were um, you know, people who were founders of the Musser movement reading um, muscular literature, does that make sense? Muscular literature. Or, you know, was somebody who was uh, known as a Kabbalist reading, um, I don't know, philosophical translations of Aristotle. So you can get, it, you can sort of get other ideas about influences and how, who was being influenced in different ways based on the books that they had in their collections. Right. So now if someone wants, now you're making this available for research people to use. So what exactly mean, but I mean, also what is Footprints meaning is our website, which people just search. How does this work? Um, so right now we have just over, actually this week, we hit 11,000 records. So every record is uh, one instance of one um, event that happened in the life of a book. 
So for 11,000 records, there might be, I don't know, 6,000 books that we're talking about. Um, but you, uh, copies of books that we're talking about. Um, you can search the database. Everything that goes in is live immediately, which is sort of a scary thing because it means that if it's a crowdsourced database. So there are many people who are entering material at the same time. And if somebody enters what we call bad data, it's there. Um, and that can confuse things. Uh, we have a regular rotation of data integrity. So people are actually going through and reviewing all of those records. Um, and right now we're actually working on um, our developers and we're, are working on something that will map uh, search results. So if you're interested in particular parameters, you can actually, you will be able to, it's not done yet, but you will be able to then create a map of those books that you're looking at. Um, so my colleague, uh, Josh Teplitsky has done some work on so books, which was a huge uh, genre. Um, throughout the, the printing period, because everybody needs kosher meat. Um, and he showed how, where all these books ended up, where they came from, how they moved, uh, and then where they ended up. And so you can get all sorts on the, on the demo side of the map, which is not yet live. Um, but there are all sorts of different, there are all sorts of different ways that you can search the database. You can export, all of our data is open. So you can actually export your search results and you'll get everything that's in the database. If you're only interested in one particular topic, you can export your search results on that topic. Right. And how, how did this project actually begin? How, I... So it began um, as an outgrowth of a, there was a working group on the history of the Jewish book at the Center for Jewish History. Um, and I was actually not in, I was part of the working group, but I wasn't one of the conveners. Um, Adam Scher convened, convened that working group and then Marjorie Lehman and Josh Toplitsky joined. Um, and at the end of the two years that they were funded for at the Center for Jewish History, um, Judy Siegel, who was then the director of academic programs, came to them and said, okay, very nice. You guys have talked about uh, the history of the Jewish book for two years. Um, and, and scholars would present their research on the history of the Jewish book. And she was so smart in that she said, okay, now what? Like, very nice that you guys have all talked about this. Have you learned anything? Have you uh, found next steps? Uh, did you, did talking about this do anything other than promote your own work? Um, and ultimately what they realized was that this is a real desiderata in the field. Um, people have written much about individual collections um, or, uh, or individual books. So, you know, somebody will write a book on the history of the publishing of this particular text or on the history of one particular library. Um, but there are many, many, um, we're, calling, we're calling books the largest hidden archive of the early modern period because there's so much in books. And if you're doing research in an archive, in a, in a rare book library, and you're looking at these printed books, you might stumble across all sorts of in interesting information, but it's not relevant to your particular research. So that information is then lost because you saw it and you're like, hey, that's cool. Like that inscription is interesting. Um, but there's no way, unless you have a friend who's doing research in that topic that the inscription is on, that information is just like sitting there closed in the book, never to be used. So this was a way to gather all of that data and make it publicly available so scholars actually can then use the information that we found, that has been found. So, who, so who's in charge of it now and who's behind it? Who, who's the fund, who's actually behind it, in charge of it? I don't know what you want to term it. So it's co-directed by the four of us. Um, so Josh, Adam, Marjorie, and myself. 
Um, it's hosted on the Columbia servers. It was built initially as a um, site to support a class that Marjorie Lehman was teaching at Columbia on the history of the Jewish book. Um, and it is, uh, and, and it's still at Columbia. So it's not, um, all the work we do at this point is volunteer. Um, and when we're, we're only able to do additional, uh, technical work on the project, if, um, if we, if we have money for it. So when we get, you know, we, we apply for a lot of grants and when we get a grant, we're able to do work on the topic. Um, but if somebody wants to send us sponsorship money, we would, um, there's, there, we have a lot of ideas and a lot of, a lot of places that we'd like to go with it. Um, but again, we're, we are volunteers who also have day jobs. Um, and all of the people who, who add material to the project, and we have a core group of maybe 10 active uh, people who are adding data constantly, and then um, maybe 20, 30 more who are adding periodically. Um, and so it's constantly being updated. Um, I should say that, that working on this project actually led us to, um, to create a workshop on early modern Hebrew paleography. Um, paleography is the study of Hebrew scripts, and medieval paleography is something that has been um, well established. There's a workshop in Oxford every year to teach the different Hebrew scripts um, in the medieval period, writing from uh, the Mizrahi lands looked very, very different than writing from Italy or from Spain or from um, Germany, certainly. So each of those scripts uh, is very distinct. And in order to read handwritten materials, you have to actually learn how to read those scripts. And because of print, um, early modern Hebrew paleography was something that hadn't really been discussed. But what we're actually working with is handwritten annotations in printed books. So we found that this was something that we certainly needed. And then we talked to other scholars and we realized that this is, was actually something that was needed by many people doing, doing research in many areas. So this past February, um, we had Dr. Edward Fram um, from Ben-Gurion come to Columbia and he gave a workshop um, to teach how to read Ashkenazi early modern hands. And it was incredible. So the work that we've done on footprints has also led us uh, to find other um, other needs in the area relating to footprints that sometimes impact other other scholarship in the, in ways that aren't necessarily connected to the specific research that we're interested in. Gotcha. Okay. Very uh, pretty cool. Um, if anyone has any questions, by the way feel free to ask as we wind down. Something else about Colombia that I forgot to ask you is obviously not now with the current situation, but do people still come in all the time to actually, per, you know, read in person the manuscripts and the old books still now that everything's being digitized, but they still come in? Well, so not everything is digitized. Right. Um, then also the, sometimes the material book itself is important. So I did a, um, shortly before Pesach, I did a, I, I gave a lecture on, um, the history of the Haggadah. And one of the things I showed were two printed, two very early printed Haggadot printed by um, the Sonshino Press in the 15th century. And one was a folio size, so very big, the size of a Gemara. And one was, um, one was quarto, 
I believe, which is more like uh, more like your standard book is small form, even small format, like like a sitter, a little bit bigger than one of those small Caesar Um And but on the PowerPoint slide, they both looked like they were exactly the same size, because when something's digitized, you often have no sense of the materiality of the book. Often when it's certainly th this is happening less as people are becoming aware of it, but the way that people used to digitize was digitize uh, materials with it was that they digitized from the first page of text. Sometimes the most interesting material is actually on the boards or on the binding. The binding could be stamped with interesting information. We have a, we have a dust, um, Tehillim and Slichot, and Slichot that's from, um, I have a lot to say on historic Jewish press. Just give me a minute. Um, <laughs> that, that we know was owned by that we know was owned by a woman because it's stamped with the name Rachel, and uh, you know, so so already we learn information from looking at the whole book. So there is real value to seeing the texts, um, the the whole of the text. That being said, um, from a conservation perspective, it's great that all of these, so many of these materials, don't have to be handled. And can and and you know just as far as access, you live halfway around the world, and you can see materials um, from around the world because it's it's available online. Um, on the historic Jewish press, it is not stalled. There's a tremendous amount of work being done. I'm actually involved in a project. I'm not sure if that's why you asked because you knew I was involved in that project, but um, I'm involved in a, a joint project. So the historical Jewish press project is a project that's now based at the National Library of Israel and has digitized a huge amount of uh, Jewish newspapers in many languages, Arabic, Hebrew, Judeo-Arabic, French, um, English, Yiddish, German, you name it pretty much. Um, and they've digitized it and they have, um, they are continuing to digitize materials. Um, Columbia has partnered uh, for the last number of years uh, with NYU who's really spearheaded this and the New York Public Library to digitize the American Jewish press. So I've been involved with the digitization of the American Jewish press. Um, what we decided to do, and this is an interesting point towards your question, Nachiv, um, what, what you do, what I do as far as collecting. So I have money to purchase collections. Um, and what we did with this Jewish press project was I actually used my collections money to pay for digitization of some of the newspapers to be included in the Jewish historical press. So instead of purchasing a database or, uh, you know, spending tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars on a database that would be then accessible to my patrons, um, I paid and NYU did the same. I paid money from my collection to create a digitized object that now will be available to everybody, including my patrons. So it's sort of a different model. I'm not actually buying something, um, but I'm create almost creating that content. The National Library right. of Israel did the actual work, um, and I've seen their operation. It's actually they have a huge. I mean, their their quality their quality control is beyond what most people will do for digitization. Um, there was one instance where where one newspaper had. You know, like one word off the corner wasn't showing because the newspaper was frayed and they were like, well, I'm not so sure if we should include this one, if we can work with this one because it's it's not visible. Um, so as far as gaps in their coverage, it, everything costs money. 
So it's a matter of who's paying for it and when things are gonna be done. Um, getting the forward done, for instance, um, NYU had a big hand in that. They also um, got grant money um, to pay all of this work. Everything that's digitized um, costs a lot of money. It's not just taking a picture. Aside from like the incredibly expensive equipment costing sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, there's taking the there's taking the picture. There's um, there's there's um, letting there's there's going through the images to make sure that they're okay. They OCR whatever images they can um, so that it can be searchable. Uh, there's and then it has to be added to their online repository. So all of that requires both technology and hardware and software and human labor, and that's money. Morgan Journal is is on its way. <laughs> so, um, I just got it. Someone had just texted me to ask you about Hador. Hador is a it's it's Israeli though, isn't it? Is it an American paper? I'm only working with the American press. I think it's Israeli. Yeah. So I I don't know. So right. I can't give you I can't give you all the names. Um, right. Some of them are in progress. Sometimes there are copyright questions. Um, my mm. my colleague who's working at NYU had gone through spent a year. Yeah, the American press. That's what we're working on. Um, had spent a couple of years literally turning the page of every page of a particular paper so that she could confirm that we could digitize the newspaper past 1923, which is the sort of default date for copyright. But the amount of, of work that needs, oh, it is American? Okay, so I, it wasn't part of our project, Hadoar. Um, but so, so the amount of work that's involved is huge. Um, and of course, there's, there's money that's required also. So the answer, the short answer to the question um, is that it's, it's definitely still in progress. I have a meeting, I had a meeting today about it. So I can confirm that it's still in progress. <laughs> Um, and, and there's still a lot of work to be done. And if you want to, I, I'm sure that, that the Jewish Press Project would happily take your money if you wanted to uh, sponsor some digitization of papers, because it's a lot of money. Right, I see here, just because it's my uncle, he asked what papers papers already digitized, will you add them? He's, he's um, that. It's already digitized. So I think that, so part of it, it um, the that's more on the on the J press side. I think that they've been working with other um, with already digitized papers to include them, but there's a lot of um, there's a lot of logistics just in getting these papers included. I should mention that my colleague at um, Ohio State, um, Yossi Galron, has put together a wonder. There's a union list of uh, digitized newspapers. Um, digitized Jewish newspapers. And if you Google it, um, I can also post the link if I remember. Um, but it's it gives you a list. So if you're looking for a particular paper, if it's already been digitized, uh, he posted the link. And there are literally hundreds on there. Um, he has a, a separate list for Hebrew and for English. So I'll try to remember to post it. If I don't, tag me and I'll, I'll, I'll put it on. Wow. Okay. I think there's plenty more to talk about, but... Um... If anyone has any more questions, but otherwise, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Sure. Okay. Have a great night. You too. Have a great <laughs> night. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.